You're listening to a Stranger podcast. www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Podcast. I got in trouble with the Catholics last week. I have used this headline a million times on Slog, uh, the Strangers blog, where I blog every day. Uh, whenever I write about the current Pope Emeritus, the ex-Pope, the most recent Pope, the first Pope to retire in six or 700 years of Catholic history, um, whenever I write about him, I affectionately use this in the, the headline on my blog. That motherfucking power-hungry self-aggrandized bigot in the stupid fucking hat joins Twitter. That was one of the headlines that I used. Um, and then when the Pope announced he was retiring, I, of course, headlined that post. That motherfucking power-hungry self-aggrandized bigot in the stupid fucking hat retires. And the good folks at Newsbusters and then Bill Donahue at the Catholic League exploded right on cue. You know what? If you just want to see Bill Donahue at the Catholic League dance – just give him a call and say, that motherfucking power hungry self is bigger than the stupid fucking hat. Watch him explode. Watch him do his little bigot dance because he will. Um, they kind of blew up at me because oh, I'm an anti-Catholic bigot and look at what I said. Look at what I said. And of course, every time they do this and it happens every time I headline a post that way, I have to go on Twitter and I have to go on my blog and I have to point out. I have to give credit again to the genius that is Tim Minchin who actually – wrote that line. It's a lyric from his song, The Pope Song. And if you haven't heard The Pope Song, you really need to stop listening to the podcast right now for just a minute and go to YouTube and look up just Pope Song. You just go to Google and put in Pope Song and up pops Tim Minchin's Pope Song and it is genius. And in it, he calls the Pope that motherfucking power-hungry self-aggrandized bigot in the stupid fucking hat. And it's really fucking funny. And he's it, – you know, it's a song that comes from a place of real anger about the Pope covering up for child rapists. When you cover up for people who are raping children, when you enable child rape, when you are basically an unindicted co-conspirator to mass child rape, people get mad at you and they will call you things like that motherfucking power-hungry self-aggrandized bigot in the stupid fucking hat, right? Uh, anyway, I was thinking about the Catholics this week because I'm in trouble with the Catholics and Bill Donahue put out a press release called Dan Savage, Savage's Pope. Did you catch that? Savage, Savage's. That was really clever. I've never heard that before. Um, in his press release, he delivers to me, he serves me the worst insult that a Catholic bigot can possibly throw at another man. He calls me a name that to a Catholic man like Bill Donahue is – the worst thing you can call another Catholic man. He calls me a woman. Donnie, who complains that I was invited to a White House reception for homosexuals. And I said in my post about it that I arrived with my husband. Would that make Dan Savage the guy's wife? Because he can't be a husband without a wife or a wife without a husband in Bill Donahue's fevered imaginations. But, oh, he said I had a vagina. Is there a worst insult in Bill Donahue's? mind? No. Anyway, I was thinking about the Catholics, of course, because the Pope retired. That self-aggrandized motherfucker retired, which hasn't happened in a long time. And right now, there is no Pope. Right now, we are Popeless. They're meeting in the Sistine Chapel. The cardinals, the princes of the church, they're all meeting. Save one. Cardinal Keith O'Brien, the highest-ranking Catholic official in the United Kingdom, it ain't there. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard of Cardinal Keith O'Brien. He's sort of 
not very nice uh, to gay people. He has described us as captives of sexual aberrations. He has said that same-sex relationships are harmful to the medical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of those involved. No compassionate society would ever enact legislation to facilitate or promote such relationships. Blah, blah, blah. He's gone on and on and on. He's a big fucking Catholic gay basher. Another self-aggrandized stupid fucking bigot in a stupid fucking hat. And uh, a couple of years ago, Stonewall, which is the big uh, gay rights org in the United Kingdom, awarded him with their bigot of the year prize. And there was some hubbub about whether that was rude, whether the gays were being rude to the nice cardinal who said that we are captives of sexual aberrations and that society should do nothing that might facilitate our relationships, like say perhaps refrain from burning us at the stake, which they used to do. Anyway, regular listeners, you know where this is going. Cardinal Keith O'Brien is not in Rome helping pick the next stupid fucking self-aggrandized bigot in the stupid fucking hat because four people came forward to accuse him of sexual improprieties. Four men, four adult men and he was out so fast in part because these just weren't – the usual pickings, uh, these people that Cardinal Keith O'Brien is alleged to have exploited sexually, alleged to have had improper relationships with, they were other priests that he had preyed upon when they were seminarians and they were deacons and they were young priests, allegedly. And so Cardinal Keith O'Brien is out, out, out. Uh, he had to retire, resign. He's not allowed to help pick the next pope because unlike Cardinal Mahoney, from Los Angeles, who evidence has come out, documents released in the last month, was covering up for and moving around priests who were raping little boys and little girls and making it possible for them to rape and rape and rape again and shielding them from law enforcement, intentionally advising them to stay out of California so they would not be arrested, moving those motherfuckers around. That motherfucker, Cardinal Mahoney, is in Rome picking the next pope because what he did is fine because that's child rape and child rape is Cool. Cardinal O'Brien preyed on priests, preyed on adult men, exploited his power and his authority and preyed upon them. And apparently that's not okay. So Cardinal O'Brien, you know, he violated the cardinal rule, I guess, of sexual exploitative relationships in the Catholic Church and uh, fucked priests. Not okay. You're going to get bounced. Fuck a little boy, you'll get moved around and we'll make it possible if you fuck another one. Rape another one. That's okay. Anyway, if Bill Donahue is listening and pretty much any time I say that motherfucking power-hungry self-aggrandized bigot in the stupid fucking hat, Bill Donahue appears before me. Uh, so I assume he's listening because I've said it like 14 or 15 times at this point. If Bill Donahue is listening, I wanted to draw his attention to another headline that I've written that he might want to shit out a press release about and maybe call me a woman for writing. There was a story in the Washington Post about the fallout from Cardinal Keith O'Brien's resignation. He had also decried a tyranny of tolerance, called gay marriage grotesque and said no secular government had the moral authority to legalize such unions. Of course this guy is a faggot, right? Of course any dude who spends this much time beating up, condemning, attacking, worrying about some other dude marrying some other dude – We've seen this script a million times. The high-profile bigot, guess what? The high-profile anti-gay bigot is a gay fucking closeted mess. Anyway, the Washington Post had a story about O'Brien and it wrote that it was contributing to the crisis of Catholicism in Europe. Thousands of Europeans abandoning the faith. 
The nature of the allegations against O'Brien has already led others to call them, if proved true, an example of the kind of hypocrisy that is eroding the church's influence, particularly on the globe's most socially liberal continent, Europe. Fresh scandal now, observers say, could undermine the church's current battle to restore its voice in the region, which it has waged by rallying against a bevy of liberal causes from legalized abortion in Ireland to gay marriage in France. So Bill Donahue, if you're listening, and I'm sure that you are at this point, I wanted to make sure you didn't miss this headline on Slog. In linking to the Washington Post story, I wrote what I thought should have been the headline of their story. You know, Europeans are leaving the church because, oh, look at the hypocrisy. Europeans don't care for being ordered around by cock-sucking hypocrites. Should have been the headline. Oh, poor Cardinal O'Brien. Someone needed to be the church's voice in the region and he quite selflessly pulled the cock out of his mouth long enough to condemn gay marriage and then bam, he's exposed as another closeted Catholic hypocrite. Sucks to be him, don't it? Doesn't suck so much to be Cardinal Mahoney who is in Rome right now despite having enabled, conspired – go to the LA Times, read the documents – conspired – to cover up for and protect child rapists. That motherfucker is in Rome. That motherfucker is helping to pick the next motherfucking power-hungry self-aggrandized bigot in the stupid fucking hat. Just had to Catholic out there for a second because the Catholics have been coming for me this week on Twitter and in my email inbox because Donahue put my email on his press release and encouraged his followers to tell me that I'm a cocksucker who's going to hell, which I knew and you knew because you're a listener to my cocksucking show. One Catholic pro-life mom and blogger on Twitter noticed my headline about the cardinal calling him a hypocrite and a cocksucker. Suzanne Fortin, who is at Rose Blue on Twitter, jumped down my throat and accused me of being an intolerant hater for insulting the cardinal. And I pointed out that hypocrite is just a fact and where I come from, cocksucker is not an insult. It actually recommends a guy where I come from. Suzanne and I kind of got in on, on Twitter for a while and she claimed that Catholics are oppressed and gay people are not. And I pointed out that her marriage is legally recognized in all 50 states and mine is not. And she wrote, your marriage is based on sodomy. Mine isn't two totally different sexual acts, which I thought was kind of bigoted. My marriage isn't sodomy based. It's sodomy enhanced. I feel sorry really for anyone whose marriage isn't sodomy enhanced. While it was nice to come to the attention of an obscure Catholic blogger on Twitter, I really want – what I really would like is a, a, another press release from my good friend Bill Donahue slapping me around for Europeans don't care for being ordered around by cocksucking hypocrites. Come on, Bill. Make my day. Your calls along with Jesse Baring on Kink and Dan Engber from Slate on the cannibal cop trial in New York after this. This episode is brought to you by Warby Parker Eyewear. Get boutique quality, classically crafted eyewear at revolutionary prices. For a free home try-on of five stylish frames of your choice, plus special expedited delivery, go to warbyparker.com and use the code SAVAGE. This episode is brought to you by adamandeve.com. For a limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Just go to adamandeve.com and enter SAVAGE at checkout. Hi, Dan. I am... Uh 32-year-old bisexual in a loving, wonderful, heterosexual marriage with uh, another bisexual. And um, I appreciate all the shout-outs you give to the bi's, by the way. Um, I'm actually calling you because I'm a little less experienced on the gay side of things. And um, also, my marriage is an open one. And um, I'm interested in 
a man. Uh, my wife is too. He's gay 99% from my knowledge. Um, he and my wife, actually, my wife is one of those like smoking hot fag hags that uh, m- makes gay guys say, God, maybe I could make out with a chick. And uh, she and this guy have made out in the past, maybe like five, six years ago, but they, they have, and it was a lot of fun, and they're friends, and I'm becoming friends with them. And uh, the crude fact of the matter is I would love to invite him to our house and have sex with him. Um, he's, uh, he lives in the city. We live in the country, maybe an hour and a half. You know, I'd love to invite him over for dinner and sort of suss out the details. And then my, my question is, I don't know two different things. One, I, I've run to this in the past. I'm, I'm less experienced on, on the gay side of my sexuality. And I don't know how to see if somebody's a, a top or a bottom. I'm, I'm mostly a bottom, a little bit ambidextrous, but mostly a bottom as a gay. And I don't know how to ask him if he's a top. And then if he's a bottom, will he swap if that's what we need? Because I, I don't want to be presumptuous and know, think that this guy wants to have sex with me anyway. And the second question is, he's our, all the way in the city. Like, how do I say, hey, we really want you to come over for dinner. And by the way, if it works out, I want you to put your cock in my ass that would be great it would be fine too if he just comes up for dinner so maybe i could just do that but you know how do i say this is in the pretext of you know come to dinner but it's in the pretext of i'd like to fuck and b if you do want to fuck are you a top or a bottom and and would you top me if you are a bottom like how does that work there's two ways you can go about this the let it unfold sort of naturally and allow the sexual tension to build and keep socializing with this guy and have him over. If your wife's already made out with him and he knows you're bi, does he know you're bi? If he knows you're bi, he might figure that he could get the tap and you could just enjoy the delicious erotic tension. Or you can just call the motherfucker and say, hey, want to fuck my ass and see what he says. And in that moment, you'll find out if he's attracted to you, if he's actually into uh, sleeping with people who are married, if he's a top or a bottom or a versatile, uh, if he's up for maybe a buy three way because your wife is one of those hot fag hags that all the fags want to get with. In that moment, you'll find out everything. But sometimes getting to that moment quickly kind of ruins that delicious erotic tension that right now is building. And you can ask that question too quickly. You know, he might, where he's at right now, figure, I'm kind of into him. He's hot. Uh, he's married and I made out with her and that's a little weird and that was a lot outside my usual kind of sexual practices and comfort zones and uh. And if you ask right now if he wanted to go to bed with you both, he might balk. Uh, he might not have sort of thought it through to a point where he's ready to take that leap where he's actually game for it. Whereas if you allow the sexual tension to build a little longer and you get to know him a little better, he might – Come to the conclusion during – you know, as he is basically romanced by you and your wife, that that is something that he's interested in doing. So you can cut to the chase, ask the question and perhaps ask it too soon or you can have the motherfucker over for dinner and see what happens. I would go with that option. I would have the motherfucker over for dinner and see what happens. Hi, Dan. I'm a uh, female in my early 20s who is about to graduate college. Um, I've, I've never had like um, – a real boyfriend before, meaning, like, someone I can, like, you know, hang out with regularly and get regular sex with, and, like, I sort of had some stuff in high school. I wouldn't really consider them real relationships. 
and recently I seem to have fallen into a relationship of sorts. I feel very unfamiliar with this territory, but I'm like, whatever, I'll take it. Um, it's still very early stages. I'm excited to have someone who cares about me and wants to have sexual relations regularly, but um, my concern is that he seems to be a bit of a drinker. Um, not like going out or anything. He's just like a alcoholic guy. And um, I like to party like at least once a month. Um, I can drink a lot, but I don't really drink a lot. When I'm and I don't go out, it's not really my thing. I have a lot of like there's a lot of drinking problems in my family, and I know all the signs. And like he's still fairly young. He's a little bit older than I am. It's not a big deal right now, but I can see it very easily can. He's a very stressful job, uh, and, like, when would it be appropriate to, like, bring something like that up? Um, I guess, because I've never had, like, a relationship that would need to last long enough for me to bring these things up. Most people drink. Most people don't have drinking problems. Therefore, most people who drink do not develop drinking problems. You know, I come from a family myself with uh, a lot of alcoholism in its history. Um, I think all three out of my four grandparents were alcoholics. Two of them were hardcore alcoholics. Um, so I know what the signs are too and sometimes I'm on the guard for them myself. And my mother was really – when we were growing up, uh, us kids, she was really on top of us about the hereditary component uh, of alcoholism and how we needed to be conscious uh, of the way we dr would drink and how much we would drink and our sort of genetic – propensity perhaps towards alcoholism. We need to be aware and conscious and on our guard. Uh, but none of her children are alcoholics and she wasn't an alcoholic um, because most people drink, most people aren't drunks. Some people though who have been exposed to alcoholics see the signs where they are not or they interpret you know, someone with a drink in their hand as that is a sign. Oh my god, you are drinking. That is a sign of potentially a future drinking problem and it isn't. But you, you're within your rights to say to this guy, a lot of alcoholism in my family, so I'm a little, you know, on edge and spooked by drinking generally. I don't think you have a drinking problem. You clearly can handle your alcohol. You don't drink to excess. You don't get sloppy. You're not a different person when you drink. So it's cool. But I'll always be a little bit skittish. It'll be, always be something that if you're in your long-term relationship with me that I'll always have my eye on because I don't want to be with someone who is an alcoholic, who has a drinking problem. Make him conscious of it just like my mother made her four children conscious of our hereditary higher risk for alcoholism and made us all think and, and be thoughtful about how and when we drank and how much. You can do that for him. You can make him thoughtful. You can make him think about it. What you shouldn't do is stigmatize normal drinking and healthy drinking. There's a lot of health benefits to moderate consumption of alcohol because then you're just going to make yourself the crazy one. Then alcoholism is going to – Destroy another relationship without anybody being an alcoholic because you will drive this guy off by browbeating him about what may be normal healthy drinking. Just put it in his head. A lot of alcoholism in my family. Drinking kind of spooks me and just so you know, just so you know that if it you know escalates or gets crazy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk and then he'll be thoughtful about it. But if you – every time he has a beer, every time he has two or three, if he gets drunk every once in a while, you lose your mind. He may not be an alcoholic and be doing all those things. But your fear of alcoholism because of your experience with it could then destroy this relationship. So he needs to watch his drinking and you need to watch your paranoia.
This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Warby Parker Eyewear. Warby Parker is a new company and they're making big changes to the eyewear industry with high quality, stylish sunglasses and prescription glasses available online, delivered to you at home at really revolutionary prices. Glasses start at just $95 and that includes prescription lenses. You can try Warby Parker stylish glasses for free with their home try-on program. Just go to warbyparker.com, choose five pairs, and Warby sends them to you. You try them on, then you order the frames you want, and Warby Parker takes care of the rest. And for every pair of glasses purchased, Warby Parker donates a pair to someone in need. This is a company that's going to make buying glasses cheaper, fun, easy, and pain-free. So give Warby a try for a stylish new pair of prescription glasses or sunglasses at warbyparker.com. And because I wanted to check this out, um, I don't wear glasses uh, and I'm not a fashion type, but my husband, he wore glasses for many years before he got the magic eye surgery. But he's a big sunglass freak, as anyone who follows him on Instagram knows. And we ordered a few pairs of sunglasses from WarbyParker.com and he loves them and says they are really high quality and he was shocked uh, by how much he loved them. So Terry, wherever he is right now, is is probably wearing his new Warby Parker Aviators, um, which he is in love with and I haven't been able to pry off his head since they came in the mail. Be sure to check out the free home try-on and when you decide to purchase, enter code SAVAGE for expedited shipping. That's WarbyParker.com and the code again, SAVAGE. Hi, Dan. Um, I have been listening to a lot of your past podcasts and it seems like there are a million uh, different sexual fetishes out there, but they all seem to revolve around the same few themes, which are power, humiliation, and control. And that got me wondering, what is it about these things that is so sexual to so many people? Um, is it, does it have something to do with brain chemistry? Does it have something to do with culture? Um, how much does it vary across culture? Um, if you go to a little tribe somewhere in uh, very remote places in South America or, or, or Asia, are you going to find people being attracted by these or turned on by these same themes of power and humiliation and control? And why have they crept their way into so many people's sexual fantasies? Joining me by phone, Jesse Baring, PhD. He's a regular contributor to Scientific American and Slate Magazine and other publications. He's the author of the excellent book, Why is the Penis Shaped Like That? and other reflections on being human. And his new book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, comes out in October. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us, Jesse. My pleasure. Hi, Dan. Last summer, you filled in for me when I was on vacation and you wrote the Savage Love Letter of the Day and they were awesome. I did. Yeah, that was an experience. Yeah. I'm going to have you back if you will demean yourself and degrade yourself again by uh, agreeing to do that. Um, I, I love that, yes. So you're, you've probably looked into power, humiliation, control uh, for your new book, for Perv. Is there anything you can tell this caller about the ubiquity of these kinds of fantasies? Uh, well, I think what he's, I mean, he's referring to a very particular category or sort of sub, subtype of uh, fetish or paraphilia. And actually, there's a difference between those two, those two, those two uh, categories. But he's, I mean, he's referring to sadomasochism, essentially. Uh, and I wouldn't say that sadomasochism is a common feature of all the fetishes or all the paraphilias. I think it's a, it's a, it's a subtype in itself. But don't you think that so many different types of paraphilias and fetishes at bottom are about power and control and dominance, even a foot fetishist? So many of them uh, seem really. to be I about – no? No, I think, I mean, I think the, the argument would have to be made. I mean certainly there, would, there are foot fetishists who are also sadomasochistic, but I don't think that they necessarily have to go together. 
Um, I mean, if you think about if you think about the vast range of all the possible anomalous sexual deviations, there's I think at last count there was over 500 distinct types of paraphilias. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to see how some of them would connect up with these this sort of trio that he's envisioning here. Uh, I mean, if you take something like I don't know. Apolinophilia, which is the attraction to people who have amputations, um, you know, I suppose the argument could be made that you know you want somebody who is at a physical disadvantage to you. But I don't think that if you if you sort of if you interview them and you unpack their reasoning about why they're attracted to amputees, they probably wouldn't say anything along those lines. They just simply had always had this sort of arousal pattern to people that are missing a, a limb. Um, and if you go back far enough, they think that. That many of these individuals, for example, will say that the the attraction to to this deviant category, whatever happens to be, emerged at a very young age, between the age of four and nine. So, does it say something about the viewer then? If somebody sees power games and almost all fetishes, as I do, <laughs> um, I mean, I look at somebody perhaps. who's into into pieing and you know smashing a pie in someone's face that fetish or goop play, and I see there I see a lot of power and control there, and a lot of one person sort of driving it. And one person being messy and the other person not, and that you know, clothed male, naked female kind of power differential. Well, I mean, I mean, if we're talking about fetishes, especially, I mean, the the, the technical definition of a fetish doesn't even include another human being. It's an object that you're um, sort of oriented to. So, but in common usage, uh, now fetish means more than that. Yeah, I think he's. I mean, he's definitely using it in the sort of colloquial sense, uh, but. Um, you know, something that happens to sort of turn you on or makes your arousal more exacerbated um, is very distinct. It's different from having sort of a, a clinically diagnosable paraphilia or fetish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think the terminology—I mean, the terminology is slippery, but I think it's important as well. Okay, so if not all paraphilias and fetishes involve power, why is it that so many people's kinks and fetishes do involve power? Well, I do think that the the sadomasochistic uh, component. Um, is a very strong one, and it does underlie a lot of human sexuality. Um, you know, typically you wouldn't consider somebody to be, you know, to be a sadist unless they're, you know, really sort of genuinely causing harm and distress against somebody who's not giving consent. I mean, they really take the pleasure in the fact that you're causing somebody else pain or suffering. Um, but most people that are sadomasochistic, uh, the sort of S and M BDSM community. You know, they're they're sort of what John Money, a sexologist, called velvet dragons. You know, they're they're sort of playing at simulated pain. Um, you know, very few people are sort of genuinely committed to the role of being a sadist, mm-hmm. or you know, they have limits to the extent to which they're uh, agreeable to being the masochist in the interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. It's a woman that's sort of you know biting into her husband's rear end and calls, call, calling him a prissy little bitch or something like that. That's not really a sadist, you know. That's sort of a, that's sort of a, a playful. But it is an know. arousing power game, and so many people's yeah. kinks and paraphilias and fetishes sort of tap into that. You know, those arousing power games. Does it have something to do with the fact that we're just fucking monkeys in shoes, like Tim <laughs> Minchin sings, and we're you know, deeply hierarchical primates and playing with hierarchies and and flipping roles and inverting power dynamics is inherently arousing, gets the blood going? I do. I mean, I do think that, the, I mean, clearly what these types of interactions uh, suggest is this sort of eroticization of a power differential. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can change roles in the bedroom where you can't, uh, you know, or it's not as easily to do that, easy to do that in, in your real social life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think that it's, you know, probably it's striking at some core feature of human sociality and, and getting into these sort of animalistic uh, 
uh, aspects of our underlying psychology. And, you know, you do find all sorts of variant uh, power differential plays like this with sex across societies, across different human cultures. So yeah, to um, answer the caller's other question, this does – this is common through all cultures and through all times, this kind of power play in human sexuality. Yeah, excuse my dogs. Uh, I, thought, I thought suddenly we were in a puppy play scene, you and I. Yes. Yeah, so, don't, yeah, don't bark, Jesse. Day. You don't have to bark Another day, to the other yeah. show. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, there are all sorts of things that we would consider to be heinously uh, violent or offensive that are normal behaviors in other cultures. You know, women that are, you know, biting off the eyebrows of their lovers as they're having sex, <laughs> um, poking ears, they're poking somebody's poking your fingers into somebody's ears um, as you're having sex with them because the... Ew, that's the, that's guess, the you know, ideas thing I've ever heard. I hear shit well, all the time. That's awful. Well, it would hurt, but I guess the, sort of the argument is that when you dull the physical sensations through pain, um, somehow it takes you into this different type of uh, uh, realm with it, the inner subjectivity that when you're having sex. The subjectivity of the, the person that's actually experiencing the pain is key. Um, you know, what's painful and disgusting and, uh, or um, uh, vicious to one person is, is arousing to another. <laughs> or both at once. Yes, yeah. Um, quickly, before we let you go, tell us a little bit about Perv. What are appetites so people run out and pre-order the book? So Perv um, is, is getting at the, um, the underlying, you know, my, my idea is to sort of talk about the, the core sexual deviant in everybody. Everybody's got some aspect of their uh, sexual identity that is probably deviant from the norm uh, if you look deeply enough. And the book is an investigation of that and why we are so hesitant to sort of acknowledge our, our true sexual uh, nature. I always call that column C. Everybody's got something from column C. There's column A, which is everybody, column B, which is most everybody, and column C, which is whoa. Yeah, and sometimes you've got to connect them to some sort of physiological measuring device to actually find out what that is. But um, <laughs> it's in there somewhere if you look closely enough. Well, I can't wait to read about it. And Perv, Jesse Baring's new book coming out in October. Baring's website is www.jessebaring.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jesse Baring. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jesse. Thanks, Dan. This episode is brought to you by adamandeve.com. For a limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Go to adamandeve.com and order almost any one item at 50% off. Choose a new adult toy, lube, or almost anything from over 18,000 adult products. Then at checkout, enter offer code SAVAGE and you'll get to choose three free adult DVDs. That's right. You get to choose your own DVDs. Plus, receive a free mystery gift and free shipping on your entire order. Choose from all kinds of genres for both gay and straight folks. And now you can also shop on your mobile phone at Adam and Eve. That's adamandeve.com and enter Savage at checkout. Uh, hey, Dan. I'm calling in question for a friend. He's a few years older than me, and he's just a really awkward guy. I want to impart some advice to him uh, so he can you know, possibly get a girlfriend. And what I wanted to, to like ask you is like, what can I, what can I tell him? Cause he lives with his mom. She has diabetes and, and she's really sick all the time. Like advice that I can give him to try and get out of the house while not like feeling like he's abandoning his mother. Um, cause yeah, she's really, really sick. It may be low self-esteem. Like, he should have learned to love himself before he uh, he tries to get a girlfriend, but 
what to say to him and how to approach it. You never say that your friend is unhappy and wants a girlfriend, which leads me to believe that your friend may not be unhappy, although he's in a very difficult circumstance taking care of his sick mother. But there are single people who are content, relatively content, being single or 100 percent content. As Eric Kleinenberg, the author of Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone, unpacked for us on the podcast recently. You should read his book. Not everybody who lives alone or is alone uh, or is single is unhappy. But there are a lot of people who are coupled or you know, have girlfriends or boyfriends who look at their single friends with pity because to be single, to be alone is this presumed to be miserable state. Maybe he's miserable because his mother is dying and that needs to be his focus right now. Or, or maybe he's miserable because he feels like he has to pretend to be miserable. There are single people out there who don't feel entitled to be publicly happy about this. They feel like they have to kind of honor the cultural script that we're all supposed to be miserable uh, unless we're partnered. And so they tell their partnered friends or their friends who are dating that, oh, yeah, I'm single. Oh, that's really bad. I wish I had a girlfriend or boyfriend when they actually really don't want one. But they feel like they have to say that because that's what's expected of them. They may say that without realizing that it's not actually how they feel. So deeply carved into people are these insecurities about being single. So maybe your friend is single and he really wants a girlfriend or maybe he's perfectly content with things as they are right now. Why don't – instead of worrying about his singleness as this problem that you have to solve, why don't you just be his fucking friend and hang out with him and spend time with him? And if he's crushed by this – responsibility of seeing to and taking care of his ailing mother and that leaves no time for any other pursuits, whatever they might be, whether it's finding a girlfriend or getting out of the house uh, to do something else that gives him pleasure. Why not solve that problem? Why not regard that as something that you could work on and help him out with as opposed to his singleness? Get some other friends to come by and help out around the house. Offer to pitch in. Create an online calendar so that every once in a while somebody can pick up a day and be at his mom's house and take care of the, a little bit of the cleaning or the cooking or the whatever so your friend can get a break and can go out and go do something else, whatever that might be, whether it's hitting the bars and looking for a girlfriend or just going to a baseball game or just going for a walk or going somewhere and reading for a while. Do that instead and work on the real problem here, which is this is an adult man who has a desperately ill parent and there isn't a lot of support or services out there because this is America and he could use some help with that, with the real issue. And then maybe the girlfriend thing will solve itself if he's got some more time in his life because you're working on what really burdens him, which is not being single. It's being solely responsible for an ailing parent. Help him out with that. The trial of the cannibal cop is underway in New York City. Daniel Engber from Slate, an editor and writer for Slate, is covering the trial. He wrote a piece about the cannibal cop uh, and we recorded an interview with him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we talk in the piece about the trial being upcoming but the trial is actually underway and you should go to Slate.com to read Daniel Engber's ongoing coverage of the cannibal cop trial. But here's our conversation from a couple of weeks ago about the case. Gilberto Valle has been dubbed New York City's cannibal cop. This despite the fact that unlike Milwaukee's cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer, who ate a friend of mine, Valle hasn't actually eaten anyone. He was arrested by the FBI for making plans to kidnap, rape, kill, cook and eat a woman. And prosecutors uh, say that authorities stepped in and arrested Valle just as he was beginning to take concrete steps to realize those plans. A lot of people seem satisfied with uh, the fact that Valley's in jail, particularly the women on his list. He kept lists of the women that he was going to kidnap, kill, cook and eat. 
Uh, and we've talked a little bit about him uh, on the podcast when the subject of Vore has come up, gore porn and cannibal porn. Uh, Daniel Engberg, contributing editor and columnist for Slate Magazine, wrote a piece last week calling Valley's fantasies perverse, but his prosecution something worse, a perversion of justice. Thanks for jumping on the phone with me, Daniel. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Most people read the headlines about New York's cannibal cop, uh, maybe read the lead and then turned the page and stopped reading, just happy to know that this guy was off the streets. Why do you think, what do you think is wrong with his prosecution? What do you unpack for us in this piece on Slate? Well, uh, what I'm looking at in the piece is, is the question of, of whether this guy was really intending to go out and, and kidnap and, and eat people, or if he was just doing some kind of um, elaborate online role-playing with uh, you know, somewhat creepy but innocent but, but harmless, I don't know, innocent, creepy but harmless incursions into, into real life. So just sort of like role-playing and the more real he could make the fantasy by making it more detailed and actually maybe going through some of the motions and steps. But at what point do you – at what point should the authorities step in? Should they wait for him to have killed and cooked and eaten a woman or erred on the side of not having a woman killed, cooked and eaten? Well, I think that's an, an incredibly difficult question, um, especially when – there is, I'm sure, a lot of this internet role-playing going on. Um, they did have him under careful surveillance for months. So, um, Which is something I didn't know about, which I didn't read about until I read it in your piece, that he was under surveillance for months, that on different occasions he'd sort of made plans and you know taken a couple of what could be interpreted as concrete steps and then dropped it, that he never followed through on any of these plans, these very detailed plans that he had hatched. And you right. take that as evidence that he had no intention of ever following through on any of these plans. This was role-playing and fantasizing, as creepy as it might have been, but not criminal. Right. So the, if, if you read through the felony complaint, which is on the smoking gun, um, there, some of the details are, are really chilling. I mean, he's make, he has a file on his computer, blueprint for cooking and eating, and then the name of, of a woman that he knows. And he has a list of what is he going to need? He's going to need a rope. He's going to need chloroform. He's been on websites figuring out how to make chloroform. And he's discussing with some of his friends online exactly what he's going to do. He's, he's sort of showing off about the fact that he knows how to do these things. He's, I mean, he's talking about the fact that he's a cop. That's very distressing. Um, he's apparently planning to abuse his, his authority as law enforcement. Um, and then he's actually going out there Apparently, now this is going to be at issue in the trial, whether he really did this, but the prosecution claims that he was, you know, in the uh, three-block vicinity of one of the women that he talked about abducting, and then he had lunch with another of them. These are people he knows. Um, I don't think that's unusual that people that... Uh, people that, fantasize yeah. about people they know. Exactly. So, but, so the question is, right, so if, if, if this was all building towards a single plot discussed with one specific set of accomplices. I mean, it seems to me that that would be very uh, convincing grounds for stepping in and doing something about it. But if you actually look at the felony complaint, there's just a run of these of these plots, or I might call them fantasies, where, you know, first it's one woman, he's negotiating with one friend, and, you know, supposedly he's in her neighborhood once. And then a couple of months later, it's something someone totally different. And a couple of months later, it's someone totally different again. And, I mean, that kind of uh, repetitious, um, you know, seemingly masturbatory fantasy, 
I just I I wonder how that rises above the level of, you know, this is someone who is, you know, maybe compulsively doing this, but uh, doesn't doesn't seem inclined to take the next step. But the FBI has to make that decision. When when do they let it go on? Uh, when do they feel comfortable just, you know, shutting down the surveillance because it's just one of these uh, aborted plots after another? And when do they say, okay, we're going to bring this guy in? Or when do they say maybe this guy shouldn't be a cop? I think that's part of what freaks people out about this case so much is that he did, as a police officer, have the authority to arrest and detain people. He had he, – he could go and pick somebody up under the guise of being a police officer, throw yeah. them in handcuffs and take them away and instead of delivering them to the station, deliver them to one of his cannibal buddies theoretically and – you know, are there fantasies that you might have that disqualify you from having that kind of state power and state authority? That's yeah, that's a really uh, interesting point. I mean, this is the cannibal cop story. Would it would it be getting quite as much play if it was the you know cannibal plumber? Um, <laughs> and I think this is this is coming not that long after a, you know a, a big story about a New York City cop who allegedly uh, just came into a woman's apartment and raped her. So I think. This is, you know, the authorities are going to be very careful when there's a New York City cop who's maybe stalking and planning to attack women in the city. And if your name was on that list or your sister's name was on that list or your, you know, best friend or your fiance's name was on that list, you would want the authorities to err on the side of overreacting than sure. overreacting. Uh, yes. I mean, the question, there, so there's several different questions here. Uh, of course I would. Uh, I'd want the authorities to be very cautious. But really what's going on here, so he's he's been charged with two crimes. He's been charged with one crime, which based on what I've read, and obviously he'll, he ha- he'll have his day in court starting on February 25th, but it seems like there's some pretty good evidence that he used his law enforcement powers inappropriately to stalk at least one of these women. He consulted a law enforcement database inappropriately just to, uh, you know, indulge this fantasy or further his plot. So that the, the penalty for that is up to five years in prison. Um, I gather he would lose his job as well. Seems like this is something you have to prosecute, and in fact, it would be insane not to. Um, the, the question is, uh, you know, now this guy's lost his job. Maybe he's even served prison time for, for abusing his powers as a police officer. Does he deserve to be in prison for life, which is the which is a potential sentence for his conspiracy to abduct, kill, and eat all of these women. So that's I mean that's really my article is more about that second charge. The first right. one I think is is uh, you know it's kind of it is what it is. Did he did he abuse his his authority? But but I mean you're raising a, 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 even a separate question separate from this legal issue, which is should he be fired? Should a should a police officer be fired? Um, even if he never took these real life steps, if they, if uh, if his bosses just became aware of the fact that he had these fantasies, I, that's a that's a tough question. I would say no, uh, but I think that's difficult. What do you think? Well, uh, you, you know, if somebody has fantasies about BDSM or bondage or you know, even crazy kind of SM scenarios and scenes, and also happens to be a cop, I don't think that that's necessarily problematic. What, what, what is creepy even to me is someone who's a big defender of people's kinks and do whatever you want and safe, sane and consensual is the intersection. You know, is that finding out that he was fantasizing about this and fantasizing about a way where he was going to abuse his authority 
as a, a police officer to arrest someone and then and detain them and and pick them up and that's what's just so you know you don't want to I, I I'm with you I don't think people should be thrown in prison for thought crimes and I think some people have really dark and fucked up fantasies and most people. The overwhelming majority of people don't act on them. It is illegal to own a slave. There, we do not throw people in prison for fantasizing about owning slaves and getting into the BDSM scene. Even having 24-7 consensual slave master or mistress relationships. We allow people to do that and we don't prosecute them for that even though it's technically I- I- illegal. You know, The ultimate realization of that fantasy would be illegal. But this, at least where it intersects with his career, just makes me, even me – extremely uncomfortable. But one of the things I thought was so interesting about your piece is you dig into the Vore scene and some of the players in it and the highest profile sort of not practitioners of it, but pornographers really in the Vore scene. And they say that they, many of them, they have no interest in actually acting on these things, which for me reminds me of talking to people who have incest fantasies who then say, but not with any real relatives, that it's this abstract idea of incest uh, and the the power fuck upness of incest that turns them on, but not their actual siblings, parents, uncles, aunts. Yeah, well, I but mean, we're being act- we're being asked to take this leap of faith. You know, okay, so you can be a cop, and here, okay, and you have this fantasy, and oh, well, we trust that you're not ever going to actually arrest a woman and kidnap her and kill her and cook her and eat her. That is that extra leap that I think troubles people. But you know, the cannibal who ate my friend Tony was a. Worked in a chocolate factory sweeping the floors. Hmm. He, he didn't need a badge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think in in going in and visiting some of the four message boards and and I mean, just lurking there and and seeing what's involved for for a lot of the people posting. I mean, they're, the the actual content of the fantasies are are really divorced from reality. I mean, four includes. Um, animals eating other animals or or space aliens eating people i mean there's just a lot of the art and and some of this art has been is will be introduced as evidence at the at the trial coming up but a lot of the um art and pornography is is very fanciful um and i think in this case we have someone who who's who sort of fits into the vor fetish in in a particular you know in in hard vor um, and imagining beyond that, imagining real scenarios and going so so far as to sort of just plan out what they would be like. I mean, it's 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 pushing the fantasy pretty far, and even fantasizing, as you say, about using his police powers, and in fact, going so far as to use his police powers, you know, one baby step of the way towards finding out information about people. That's disturbing. But um, again, I don't know where where one draws the line. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think people should be punished for thought crimes and should be punished for fantasies. Um, I, and it just, it doesn't matter if, uh, to me, if it's a, a police officer, if it stays at that fantasy point, um, when it starts to make its way into reality, you have to re you know sort of re- renegotiate that rule but uh, i again i think the fbi investigation here sort of reveals that um that there was a line that this guy was not crossing are you going to follow the trial yeah i'm i'm hoping to uh to have slate send me to cover the trial in person will you come back and talk with us about it some more yeah i would love to 
Daniel Engberg, contributing editor and columnist for Slate Magazine. You should go read his piece, Free the Cannibal Cop. His fantasies are sick. His prosecution is even sicker at Slate. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Daniel. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm 20 years old, and I live in Halifax. And uh, I'm calling because I have a problem with a roommate and her boyfriend. Um, In the past, we've had problems with loud sex, like banging on the walls, screaming and stuff. And I said, I'm, we're all adults. That stuff happens, but I would really appreciate it if I have class in the morning, if you could keep it down. But about a week ago, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and her boyfriend was standing over my bed, like not just standing next to my bed. Like he wandered in in the middle of the night, although that's what he claims happened accidentally. But I like jolted upright in my bed and bonked my forehead on his chin sort of leaning over my bed and I'm just really concerned that I, and I should also mention that I'm 20 and he's about 33 or 34 I'm not I'm not completely clear on his age I don't know am I irrational for feeling like this is creepy and weird and my roommate's 22 and I mean like part of me is like dude you're like more than a decade older than me what is going on with you and I don't know. I, I, I'm just feeling really weird about the whole situation and I would really appreciate your advice. So your roommates, boyfriends, sleepwalks, and sometimes that sleepwalking brings him into your bedroom in the middle of the night. So close that if you sit bolt upright in bed, you will knock him in the chin. Uh, I would encourage you to take up sleep macing. That might solve the problem. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that he's lying, not because some people don't sleepwalk. I was assaulted once by a really good friend who has night terrors. Um, and I won't go into it now, uh, but I've, I've seen this in action. I've seen sleepwalkers and people who talk and walk around in their sleep. And I know it's a real thing. But that it happened and you know that's very sort of upsetting and can make someone feel unsafe uh, in their own home and in their own bedroom. And he only briefly apologized. He should have been mortified. He should have gone out of his way to explain if this was actually what happened that this has happened before, uh, you know, that this is a problem that he has. He should have been so solicitous of, uh, of you and your feelings and just so on the rack about what he had done to make you feel unsafe in your own home, unintentionally so, what he had done to make you feel unsafe in your own home, that he, he wouldn't have settled for a brief apology, that he would have gone out of his way to make a full and complete and elaborate, a Baroque fucking apology and explain to you exactly – from his side, what happened and how, how sad and upset and mortified he is at what he did to you and that it made you feel unsafe in your own room. That he didn't do that leads me to believe that he's either lying about what happened or he's an insensitive clod or both. So what do you do? What do you do with your roommate? Well, you put a lock on your door. That's what you do. That you can lock from the inside when you're in your room so that if he is sleepwalking, he can't accidentally sleepwalk into your room because he can't unlock the fucking door. And you kind of let it lie. You know, you're 20. I assume your roommate is close to the same age. She's dating a much older man. Love is blind. Sometimes people can't see what everyone else can see and she will eventually learn her lesson. She will come to see this guy for the shit he is if he is the shit that I think that he very likely is. And she will come crawling back to you and apologize. Right now though, so as not to put too great a strain on – the bonds of friendship. You've said your piece. Put the lock on your door. Cut your roommate a wide berth for a while. Let there be a period of sort of tense and polite, perhaps minor estrangement and let her 
come to. Let her realize that he is the bad guy that you know him to be, that I suspect him to be. And don't go to war with him about it. Don't hang out with her so much right now. This happens to even best friends. They get a boyfriend. They get a girlfriend that the best friend doesn't care for. The best friend spend a little less time together. And usually the best friend is right about the not good boyfriend or girlfriend being not good. And it takes time for the friend to realize it and get rid of that person. And then they really come to trust their friend's judgment more for having had that experience. This is a familiar story in the history of best friendships. Lock on your door, mace on your bedside, uh, cut your roommate some slack and stay out of her hair and stay out of her way. You've said your piece. I predict that shortly you will have your best friend back and a creep-free apartment to share with her. Hi, Dan. I am a lesbian from New York City just calling about uh, your podcast this week, the man who recently moved from – uh, Nashville to uh, Chicago and is having trouble finding his place in the gay community. I thought your advice to him was, you know, really right that you've got to sort of find your group of friends when you're in, in a bigger city like that. And I just thought I'd offer a couple of concrete ways that he could do that outside of bars and dating sites. He could go out for the Chicago Gay Men's Course. He could go to the center on Halstead where they've got gay volleyball and they've got gay conversational French classes and gay book clubs and any number of other interests. You could join a church or a synagogue. The um, Holy Covenant Metropolitan Community Church is a gay church in Chicago. Congregation Or Hadash is a gay synagogue in Chicago and on and on. He can just find something that is a social interest to him and build a group of friends that way. And the sexual partners will come from finding a community. A couple of weeks ago, you had on a woman who called about receiving a video from Gateway Church that uh, her relatives had sent her. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, that's my church. And the way you described the pastor, that was my pastor. And I thought, surely you are misinterpreting this video. And so I went and watched it. And my jaw just dropped because I've been going there for three years and never heard him talk like that. And so I messaged John, John Burke, the pastor. He didn't answer me. And so I went on, once again, Facebook, Facebook page for Gateway Church and left left a comment there basically in a ladylike way, calling them out and asking them if this is really their position. Um, then I'm going to have to find somewhere else to go practice my first wild Christianity. I just wanted to comment on the uh, the dad calling in and the conversation that you had with your guest about young men and the internet. I'm someone who uh, lost his virginity at 17 years old um, from chatting online via gay.com. I grew up in northern Minnesota, a single parent at home. My mom didn't really know. I snuck out um, with this guy who said, that he, you know, wants to just fool around. Long story short, he turns out to be nothing like he was in online. His picture was completely different. He's maybe 40, late 40s, did a lot of things that I did not want to do with him. Now, in hindsight, you know, some odd, what, 17 years later, I am uh, realizing all that could have happened had I uh, been in a different situation. So I just wanted to say that the conversation that you're having is so unbelievably important, and I pray that there are young boys, young gay boys, young gay women as well, 
that are listening to your podcast and listening to this episode because it's unbelievably important. I praise you and, and the guy, your guest, who's an amazing father. Um, I wish I had something like that when I was younger, and I hope that the, the father that called in really takes to heart what you guys are talking about because it's unbelievably important. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you to Jesse Baring for joining us today and Daniel Engber. Once again, you should go to Slate.com and read Daniel Engber's ongoing coverage of the Cannibal Cop trial in New York City. It's fascinating stuff. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or call for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. The podcast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk. You can be back after next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.